my family never talks about these things. Like it's just yeah. big, that whole, everyone's just all, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine until we're not mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> and so, yeah, even just reconnecting recently with different things, listening to your podcast has really opened up a lot of kind of conversations amongst my siblings, which has been really nice as well. It's opened a lot of conversations in my household too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely mine too. I think that part of the gift that this has been to me also is that maybe because of the way that we were raised, but it's so easy to just be so self-critical, like just Mm -hmm. see yourself in these terrible lights and blame yourself for all these different things. But when you start peeling back those layers and start looking at why this is happening, why, Mm -hmm. you know, and you start having more compassion for yourself. And as soon as you start having that compassion for yourself, it just, I I feel like my life blossoms even more every time, like I step into, you know, like that more expansive space of saying like, okay, we're all just here having this human experience. And nobody said that we were supposed to know how to do it. And it gives you more compassion for other people as well. I think a hundred percent. Yes. Instead of being overly sympathetic and empathetic where you're like heart is, you know, breaking for them. You can just think, Oh, there's compassion where that they did something they weren't proud of or happy of, but there was all these processes that were happening behind there. I've had to do a lot of that over the years, but yeah, we definitely had a very overdeveloped sense of guilt or shame or it was always our fault. Everything was our fault. Some of my most traumatic memories are like being in trouble, but yeah, I have to really be compassionate with myself to realize I was only a kid at that time as well and look at it in a different perspective. Yes. It's also helped me to have more understanding of other people too, because I think we can, we all get judgy in our brains. So whatever, this and that, and oh, couldn't have been like, but when you stop and talk to the people, it helps you to see things from other people's points of view too Mm -hmm. and understand a little bit more where they're coming from and then you start to realize that oh my goodness everybody basically feels the same way that I feel everybody (laughs) is going through the same kind of steps and the same patterns and Mm -hmm. then that's when you're like okay we can do something about this and yeah, you have a kind of a, a sense of, of community, a sense of feeling if other people do understand, I'm not alone, because we can all tend to feel very alone in our battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why these things are very important, because it does give you that sense of community and and just sharing with other people that have gone through similar things. And like you said, almost all the <laughs> stories that everyone has are all the same, aren't they? Like, we're all struggling along. We're all trying mm-hmm. the best we can. Mental illness doesn't discriminate. I can tell you that for a fact with that. Uh, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are or how yeah, um, wonderful your life has been. It's definitely much harder when you've had trauma in the past. But, yeah, it's definitely important to just shine a light on some of these things and stop thinking that we're all on, on our own. Welcome to episode 31. (laughs) (laughs) We always start with a a preamble. (laughs) Pre-ramble. Yeah, pre-ramble, exactly. That's funny. That's a good one. (laughs) Uh, It's always, hey, blah, 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 blah. And then, oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, it's episode this. (laughs) Welcome to Butterflies and Bravery. (laughs) yeah absolutely 31 that's cool (laughs) it seems surreal like it's it seems strange and it feels like we just have started this but then yeah when you hear 30 you're like actually that's a fair amount of episodes the only thing i ever feel from being a part of this is the honor of being able to share our stories with each other and hear from different people that (laughs) are going through the things jemima and i were talking a bit earlier about how like some of this stuff, we're only just like starting to get into looking at it and getting into deal with it because a lot of us has spent so much of our time since leaving the cult or escaping the cult or just be in survival mode. And when you're just trying to survive from one moment to the next, in our case, like we've come out of an extremely isolated situation, extreme isolation, and just being able to understand what the world is and what's going on and 
function from day to day. Yeah. That in itself was a whole survival experience. And then you've got the financial situation. You're starting from a place much farther behind than most people mm-hmm. would in at your own age bracket and everything like that. A lot of us are only now getting that opportunity and getting that chance to say, okay, I can now breathe. Uh, I'm not worrying mm-hmm. every single day where my next meal is going to come from. And now I can look at it and start to deal with it. So actually process. That, yeah. Yeah. And I've had friends come to me and it was the same with me. Sometimes decades, even you're just like, just pushing yourself, you're blocking it. You're yes. using whatever substance you need to just try to get yourself through. And, and that could mean anything, even being a workaholic, which I've had issues with as well. And just pushing yourself and like you said, survival, and you don't really have time to process what you went through. And a lot of friends have come to me and I know it was the same with me when the sort of crisis or when the all of that's kind of stops almost. And it's almost like you're in that calm place in your life where you're like, things are actually going well. Then a lot of times that's the time that you break down. It's almost like when you're in an accident and traffic accident or something traumatic happens, yes. you've got that adrenaline going And you're like, you can do what you need to do. And then after you're shaking and crying and for days after you're like, oh, and you tell the story over 500 times to try to process what you went through. But we did it for two decades. (laughs) That's a long time to be in survival mode and to be locking it it down. And then a lot of us have chronic health conditions from doing that for so long as well and physical pain and all those things, but friends have come to me and they're like, I've got this lovely relationship. I've got a great job, everything. And that now I'm just like crying all the time. What's <laughs> happening? I'm like, it's because you're not in panic mode anymore. And you're actually able to think, oh, what the hell? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> you can take some time to process what you've been through. Yeah, exactly. So you grew up in the Children of God cult as well? Yes, I did. I have a large family and I think, yeah, some of them are on videos and in Japan and all of that, uh, mm. famous and stuff. I was born <laughs> here in, in Australia and okay. um, when I was about one, we moved to the Philippines. So I, I'm actually the only child of my father. His name was Peter Puppet in the group. Oh, yeah. wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Oh, yeah, I think he was about 19. My mom was like 27 or 8 or something. So my mom was married to Shepherd, and they had a bunch of uh, kids together already. You know how it was. They just would decide one day to swap wives or, <laughs> okay, now you're not married. Now you're married. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's what happened. So he had a new wife and then she ended up getting together with my dad. And so I was his only biological um, child. My mom had myself and two of my siblings and the older siblings actually went with their dad. So we moved to the Philippines when I was about one and lived all around there, the jumbo and all those wonderful places. (laughs) When I was about three years old, my dad had really bad cancer. There's a lot of questions on how we got it, but there is some question that maybe the glue where because he used to do those puppets and he was in a, a tiny little room and uh, there was all the fumes and potentially it's hard to know obviously when it comes to cancer you never know where it comes from but uh, yeah he would oh, wow. sometimes stay up all night there and he was quite young himself in his early 20s and or was 19 yeah. I think he joined and so yeah so his cancer got really bad and I don't know if you remember but at the time it was he was one of the first sort of people that had became terminally ill so he was taking medication and it was actually shrinking my grandfather is actually a a doctor him watching start to to go downhill with one of the most treatable cancers, Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think, or non-Hodgkin's. Uh, so it started to actually get better. And then the, a letter was written about him blasting him, saying he wasn't praising the Lord enough for something because Mo yeah. said he was going to get better. And as he didn't like being shown up for <laughs> being a false prophet, <laughs> so he'd always find a reason to blame someone. So as my dad, a young man who gave ev- absolutely everything to the group, people that knew him said he wouldn't even rest. Or, 
yeah, or sleep. He was up all the time making the Love It's a, a TV yeah. show. Um, yeah, it was the first time really that anything had been legitimate in the group where there's where yeah. money was actually coming in and it was going on the TV. So after that letter, he decided to stop taking medications altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's when he declined really rapidly and ended up um, becoming too unwell. He had to come back to Australia. My mom actually came back with him. So she left all of us kids in the Philippines. I think it was oh. three and three, four, five, you know, seven of us within eight years or whatever. <laughs> I remember that time. I have like small little memories, obviously, of the big cancer lump and then being left alone in the Philippines with my sister in big homes. And I remember kicking my sister to fan me all night when the power went out and things like that. <laughs> I found out later that my mom was actually doing sex work when she came back to Australia and she wasn't even with oh, wow. him. And that was something that was really upsetting for me to think about, that he was yeah. alone. He had been deserted by his family. It was a heartbreaking for me to think that he thought on his deathbed that he'd done something wrong even though he'd given his absolute everything in life. He was extremely dedicated. That was absolutely heartbreaking. And it was only in my teen years that I actually saw some of those horrible letters, some of my letters that had been written about him. And I was yeah. just fuming. Wow. So, yeah, it was ex- just crazy, just the things that our parents did. So my mom was over here. She said she, someone pulled a gun on her while she was doing sex work. So we would have been orphaned in the Philippines as a three-year-old. It's just crazy, the things they, like, absolutely no logic. After he died, they, she came back, and then they had to burn all his photos. So we didn't have any photos of him. That was something that she was told to do. <laughs> yeah. Because when you're sick or your family members are sick, there was always like that view that there was something wrong with you. Yeah, you were being punished. You were being punished. That's what sickness always was. God was trying to show you something or punish you. I remember being almost like lepers or something instead of creating that place of, you know, empathy and care that we actually were out in the maids quarters and I remember my siblings sleeping on counters like we had four of us slept in this tiny little room <laughs> wasn't even a bedroom and yeah I remember that quite a bit with my mum because my mum was always a bit of a loud mouth and her <laughs> husband was uh, or her ex was a shepherd I remember we were always the outsiders I felt a lot and I think it was like mm-hmm. that when you were maybe from joint families or something there was always weird power dynamics I don't remember heaps about the Philippines but we came back when I was about seven and um back to Melbourne I think I actually had really bad eyesight I've had laser surgery but I never had glasses so I think that sometimes my memories are a bit fuzzy because my vision was fuzzy just the normal things. I don't remember ever being taken to the doctor. Obviously, oh, yeah. I had chicken pox and measles and dysentery constantly mm-hmm. and bad eyes. I had horrible migraines to the point of vomiting up my gut. So I remember breaking my nose. And it was this common theme of not getting medical attention when you needed it, which, yeah, yeah is something that makes me really angry now. And I think even now with all the... COVID stuff or with different people that are into natural therapies or something, sometimes I get really triggered by that. And I know I need to stay calm and, um, <laughs> because I know it's my thing, but especially when it's Christian people that are like stopping people from getting treatment and care, it's a really big thing for me because of so much suffering I've seen in my life and my family um, by not getting that medical care. That's something that I've known of friends that have lost you know loved ones as well because of that it's just heartbreaking after all those things I remember my mum we actually were sent to a retraining home when I was about nine because my mum was a big mouth I remember my mum taking me and my siblings the three of us on a train and she was should we just get off right now should we just leave and I remember that sense of freedom I was like because we've got friends in this city and I just remember that feeling like 
oh, wow, we could be free. <laughs> why, why did she do that? Yeah. So anyway, we ended up at this retraining center and it was just weird. There was standing naked in line for ages to get into a shower, to have your army showers and definitely experiences of sexual abuse and then and lots of obviously violence and and there was a lot of as a lot of corporal punishment remember a lot of beatings we did a little bit of a a tester on a page recently and it was about 77 percent of us that had actually experienced sexual abuse so a lot higher than the the average population that's for sure you mean uh, ex-members? Yeah, ex-members, we did like, the yeah. score and uh, yes. average is like six to eight, which is much, much higher than the average population. So we were actually excommunicated because they shut down the home nine at that time. And so my mom and I went, ended up leaving my 11-year-old brother and 13-year-old sister so they became wards of the state at that point, and we ended up not seeing them for another three years. Yeah, it was an extremely difficult time because when you get excommunicated, you have all these fears that God hates you and that you're out of his service. So I remember those three years, we were just desperately trying to get back in. Yep. Um And we've talked about this before, how people are like, but you're free, you're out, you're not, because you're still mentally in. And my mom, all her connections were ex-members who had been excommunicated Mm -hmm. because of pedophilia or abuse or all these things. So we ended up being in this kind of cesspool of all these people that had done horrible things and being in all these inappropriate positions, sleeping in our car constantly. Because when you get excommunicated, you don't get any money or you don't get right, any right. Fear, some help. So we had nothing. We were living in little bedrooms. Yeah, it was difficult times. And I, I remember just like wanting to get back. I just felt like oh, I have to get back mm-hmm. um, to be in God's graces. It was like a, a fear, an anxiety of of being outside of that Yeah, yeah. I I can imagine in your situation, it was twofold because the constant pressure that we always had of what God (laughs) thought of us getting judged on that side of things on our spiritual life, like you were talking about getting excommunicated, there's actually like a human psychological side Mm -hmm. to it of you've been rejected. And so you're trying to figure out a way that you can get accepted again. And so you had that double whammy a bit of not only being outside of wanting to get back in God's will, but also wanting to get with me. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're not a part of the group and we're not a part of the system. We're like right in the middle of this no man's lamb of of life. And, And I hear a lot of people say things like, oh, I never believed it. But I'm like, I think we all believed it at one point. How could we not believe any differently? We were programmed from the the moment we were born to believe that this, it's the end time, the world's ending, and we have to be Mm -hmm. in the absolute where the elite forces blah, 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 (laughs) you know, and then that that fear and that anxiety and also being separated from your family. That's extremely Mm -hmm. traumatic. So my siblings are probably my attachment, like they're my parental figures in that respect, Mm. particularly one of my sisters. She's like my mom. (laughs) She's the matriarch of the family. There's just a lot of stuff that people don't really think of. People are always like, how did you escape? How are you free? And it's exactly the same for domestic violence victims. That's what it is. It's a cult of one, domestic violence. You can go in there, you can do raids, you can drag them out, but they'll keep going back because they're mentally caught in that and there's all the other things, the love bombing, you're the family, the, and the swinging, the pendulum of the harsh, the violence, the love. It's just very confusing. I think you've had Sandy on, but Sandy actually came to my mum before the raids happened. We warned her that was going to happen and to get my siblings out. And my mom actually kicked her out the door. She was so angry. Um, So the raids happened. The police went in, took all the kids away. It wasn't for very long. They ended up going back to the homes and everything because obviously they've been programmed for years to know exactly what they were going to say when it had happened. 
It was an amazing thing that she did that because after that there was a lot more openness to the outside world. There was a lot uh, less secretiveness. There was people like our families that had been separated for so long able to reunite. We were able to have visitation with my siblings and they got to go do cool things like horse riding and everything paid for that was pretty cool. So we ended up rejoining after like scrounging our way back in. I think it's better to be honest to say that you were just all in. You were, we were trying to do the right thing rather than saying I never believed the crazy things. <laughs> I went to um, Japan for a while and then I went to India. That's a whole nother kettle of fish now. And I'm like, how did I get myself into all those crazy situations? I'm like this young <laughs> Aussie girl with so much energy and future and I'm letting these psycho narcissistic shepherd men scream at me and humiliate me and tell me off and embarrass me and partial excommunication. One time I got in trouble for having my outside clothes in the house. So someone just gave me someone gave me a piece of pizza. We're out witnessing and we're gone to a home. And I went to drop the plate into the thing. What am I supposed to put it on the floor? Just into the kitchen. And one of the crows, I'm not going to say names, but he just started <laughs> screaming at me and oh yelling. But when I think back, I was doing things like drinking tap water and things like that. Like I knew they would make me sick because I felt so unhappy. I was like a servant to go make money and to do things and to clean and watch everyone else's kids you get caught in that abusive cycle almost and you just can't get yourself out of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I ended up meeting my husband on a trip back to Canada a visa trip and and mm. he came back um, with me and then after my little baby boy was born we we're only 19 nice teenage parents we ended up deciding that the Lord wanted us to go to Africa for some reason someone gave us a prophecy then you look back and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why, as a little teenager with a brand new baby, did I think it was a smart move to, <laughs> to, go, to, to go to Africa? <laughs> yeah, I was going to do the same thing, literally. Me and my friend in Russia, we had decided to go to Africa and Michaela was one and a half, not even two years old. And the whole reason we were coming back to the States was to raise funds to go to Africa. We were going to move to Madagascar. We had it planned. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we were going to go there and be missionaries. We did a whole bunch of research about all the countries in Africa. And then, yeah, I got excommunicated too. Lucky you. Anyway, so same after you. I was just going to go back. So, so Maria, you guys did end up going to, to Africa then? With your baby. Yeah, so we did. Okay. So we ended up going to Africa with a six-month-old baby. Wow. And, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where did and so you, where, what part did you go to? The west side, the Gambia, and this area, Sierra Leone. Real Africa, we like to call it. Not South <laughs> Africa. <laughs> so um, within a few weeks, maybe a month, I had malaria. So obviously oh we gosh. didn't take any prophylactic medication or anything. Mm-hmm. I've had every disease. No, vac- no vaccinations. <laughs> no, no, never had a vaccine. So yeah, so I had malaria two times and oh you're like gosh. shaking and on yeah. fire. And, and then just within a few months really of being there, my son started to become really unwell. He started to get that high-pitched squeal and his head was going back. And I'm just a little teenager. I don't really know much about raising kids and I was actually the youngest of seven so I'd really raised my siblings yeah um, yeah so so we were praying laying hands on him anointing him with oil and fucking stupid things until he was actually having seizures and he was oh my god completely unwell we ended up rushing to the hospital which in Africa is all very not like hospitals that you see in the western countries it was a research center actually for malaria and aids and he was in a coma by the time we got him to the hospital yeah he ended up being in a coma for the next um 10 days and wow uh, 
Yeah. So that was over Christmas and I was with this tiny little baby and that was an extremely difficult time and there was little babies around me um, that were dying and AIDS and you just see a lot of really horrible things there. So he was in a coma for the next 10 days and we didn't have any pumps or any equipment and not like you can imagine people these days and so I, I had to push like milk out and it, it would take me like maybe two or three hours to get like this much milk and pour it down through his nose to get into his stomach and completely shattered and on my own as well most of the time. My husband would come and visit every now and then, but most the way uh, we grew up, I'm sure you've experienced this, and this is a good time for people to share with each other because you're not around. And so yeah. instead of family with something you wiped your ass with and the way we grew up, instead of having that kind of support and uh, you just felt a bit on your own. Yeah. So anyway, Ethan pulled through and my son and I was just absolutely grateful and then of course it was just like oh miracle of Jesus even though it was obviously the doctors that had actually given him the right medication that he needed <laughs> he had meningitis so after that I was, I was actually extremely traumatized by that experience and we decided to go to Sierra Leone because that's even more traumatic <laughs> so we ended up driving overland with this baby and I fell pregnant again and yeah yeah there's like machine guns everywhere and it it was just a crazy place like one of the guys had appendicitis and was vomiting up shit literally at gangrene before he got medicated like went to the doctor and there's just so much stuff going down there. So we ended up coming back to Australia because I was just like, oh, I can't do it. And I was just so traumatized. I'd walk down the street and just be crying my eyes out. After my second son was born, we you get like a little bit of money from the government. It's not much, a few hundred dollars or something as a baby bonus. And I was just like, we're out. <laughs> I took it like just to leave and uh, I hemorrhaged really badly during my son my my second son's delivery and we didn't have any money like we didn't have money to go and get like sanitary napkins or diapers so I actually remember making cookies to go door to door to sell so we could get some basic needs this is a few days after giving birth and hemorrhaging quite badly So it was a really rough time. In my early 20s, I had a son with a brain injury. So Ethan actually has a brain injury from the meningitis and a new baby. And yeah, that's decided, yeah, to to call it quits. And then since then, I was extremely ambitious to try to make something of myself. Have you seen Made on Netflix? No, it's a good show, actually. But I just, oh, my God, I felt so exactly like her story. She's just trying to make something of herself and she's trying to get free. And I remember crazy things like hitchhiking to get to work on time because I didn't have a car, I didn't have a license. We weren't set up with anything. We had no money, no car, no nothing. I think we're extremely resourceful. My husband and I were still together. It was 22 years in. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. Which Which is quite rare, I think. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, extremely difficult after you've been through so much drama together and it's been 18 years now my second son's 18 now and yeah so I went I did all sorts of things it was just like hustle hustle make more money come on I've got to get somewhere do something and so years and years working like that and I decided at 27 that I was going to go to university so that's a pretty daunting terrifying experience yeah just walking into the university and I remember someone walking up to me and asking if I was one of the professors on my first day (laughs) and I I actually almost felt like just walking out I'm like I look that old but no this is my first day of school it took me actually a decade to become psychologist so it's a huge process and I'm sure it's the same over there I know you've done psychology Uh, (laughs) But to, to actually become a psychologist, you've got to do postgraduate studies as well. Yeah, as a, yeah no, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Through that process, it's just 
so much that you learn but then there's always that kind of at the back of your head am I going to be found out it's a lot of people tell me they want to learn psychology so they can tell their story I'm like it's actually the opposite (laughs) (laughs) you're a professional you don't want to tell your story you almost want to be like that one person that doesn't have any issues or uh, (laughs) I even had a friend that went in for the um for an interview for masters and they asked him if he'd had any sort of trauma and he said he'd been raped and and they didn't accept him so there's actually a lot of judgment oh, wow. in this like world like they almost don't like people that have had traumatic sort of pass and I think it's because they think there'll be a lot more transference or something so I was like absolutely terrified of anyone finding out of my stories there's a lot of things going on I I was like extremely anxious with studies of course I had to study 50 times harder than anyone else just to get through um and and then even when you graduate, like you still have that sense of uh, fraud or imposter syndrome, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that you're kind of thinking that people are going to find out that you're full of crap or something. <laughs> it's, it doesn't end. A lot of my friends think, "Oh, if I can just get this degree or get this business, there's never a place that you get to where you're like." oh, I feel better now about myself. (laughs) You still have all those automatic negative thoughts. You still have those self-beliefs that you've been programmed to believe when you're a little kid that you're, you know, worthless, that you can't do anything without and all that. So it's the things that I still have to deal with every day. And so in my final undergraduate exam week I was actually sitting on a chair and I was studying and uh, and I got a call from the police and I, and they're like oh is this Maria and I'm like yes and then they said oh something's happened to your husband and I was like what happened what happened and I was just like yelling on the phone and they said he was at the hospital so I I didn't know if he was alive or dead I ended up rushing to the hospital and and he had been hit by a car like or actually a truck cycling work yeah so he was in a coma at the time and the doctor told me it was 50 50 that chance that he would live was very rude of him on my last week of exams (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh, it was absolutely horrible experience it was just oh god yeah, because I knew that if he pulled through, he would probably be in a wheelchair and he would need a lot of my help. So I just said, I'm going to just do all my final exams while he's in a coma. I didn't know if he would live or die. So I ended up getting through it amazingly. <laughs> no that, how. that must have taken a lot of fortitude. Crazy. Yeah, I had my amazing sister there and uh, she was actually driving me to things and she's such an incredible um, support to me. And during my time in at uni, I was in and out of the hospital with my son because he actually has epileptic seizures as well from the meningitis. So I wasn't a stranger to the hospital, but I just didn't know if my husband would live at all. So yeah, he ended up pulling through. So five days oh. later, he came out of the coma and yeah, it's incredible now. He's just so resilient and he's actually fitter probably than he's ever been before, but he, he broke his <laughs> back in like six places, just cracked in half. And oh my gosh. Yeah, he's had like a major injuries. He's got drop foot now, so he's got paralysis in one of his legs. And yeah, yeah, that wasn't enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after that experience, so like we're talking about adrenaline, I was just completely living on adrenaline. I was like yeah. ejecting my husband with blood thinners because he had these two giant X fixes sticking out of his uh hips to hold his pelvis in place and then when I'd shave him I would cut him so then it would spurt out blood for hours after because he was on blood thinners and uh yeah so it was just a crazy time after he started to get better and then go back to work I, I started working in mental health and I had a whole caseload of of people with schizophrenia and psychosis and and uh bipolar and I'd never experienced that before Mm. Um, because in the group if anyone was mentally ill they would just oh, yeah. be out like that would be the first thing the devil demon possession or whatever it was because of the accident and 
all those years of just pushing myself, this child with special needs and raising two kids and work and kid and husband. And, and then I ended up working with these really unwell people. I ended up getting like severe panic attacks. So I'd walk into work. Sometimes I'd be with my clients and I'd just feel, oh my God, I'm going to die. If you've experienced panic attacks before, I think you both yeah. have. explain it people will be like oh no I'm having a panic and you know panic (laughs) you're like call the ambulance I'm dying so I went through a period of probably eight months or so where I just was like out of the blue I just have these horrific panic attacks and a lot of times was when I was driving but as a professional in a room with a bunch of doctors and nurses and we're trying to I think it's just anywhere you can't get away from it's Mm -hmm. almost like you you get that feeling and then you try to stop the feeling and then you're scared of it and then it becomes this those tuning for it that go boing it's kind mm-hmm. of like hitting them so yeah so that sort of sent me on that healing journey like even though I'd done all these studies cognitively I, I learned a lot about group think mentalities and developmental psychology and cognitive you know and you don't really learn anything about counseling people don't think they do and actually what people think psychology is about mostly about statistics and research and all but when I yeah isn't it stats are horrible yes they are So when after that happened, I was just like, I'm actually dying. I really thought I was dying at least one time per day. So that sort of forced me to start actually getting proper therapy and to go on that journey myself to realize um, what's going on in my body. Yeah, I've, I really have come to the conclusion and all the trauma research, Gabor Mate and Waking the Tiger, Peter Levine, if you've read all those mm-hmm. books, The Body Keeps the Score, it's all in your body. That's where the trauma yes. happens. It's mm-hmm. all physiological. I realized after I started seeing a somatic therapist, which sort of comes from that Peter Levine model, and I I realized I'd never, ever felt comfortable in my body or safe in my body in my whole life. Yes. And I've even heard you talk about that before. Uh, I think it was you, Jemima, maybe. You were saying um, that you'd cut yourself or hurt yourself and you wouldn't even know or bruises, was that? Yeah. Uh yeah, like burn, I burn myself and stuff, and I don't don't realize it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and you're like, oh, it's, we're so disconnected from our body, uh, yeah. especially the way we grew up, having all this sexual abuse, but a lot of physical. Like, we're just so disassociated mm-hmm. from what's going on, and even being inside your body is a su- such a scary feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never really thought of it before until I started having these horrific panic attacks and realizing, holy shit, there's so much stuff trapped in there and there's a lot of other physiological symptoms. And I think a lot of us have those chronic health things or Mm -hmm. IBS or back problems. And because there's actually some really good books on it, like Dr. John Sarno talks about, it's like rage. You actually have this internal rage and and it's not safe for you to let it out. So you're actually holding it in as anger inside your physical system. And a lot of the research around that shows that like the children with disorganized attachment, that a lot of times they'll just sit there completely silently and show no feeling or emotion but their physiological is so much higher than even the kids that are screaming because they're just like so yeah like it's just so overwhelming for them just the disorganization not knowing if they're going to be yelled at or screamed at or loved or hurt Mm -hmm. and I think us have those sort of attachment patterns as well because it was a slap across the face randomly when you didn't know what you did wrong or it's just like that shocking things and it, not having someone to soothe you when you're tired and when you're hurting and not having a you know close attachment to a caregiver that loves you or supports you that makes you feel safe in your body and in the world that's where it all comes from so I think yeah, that experience, an incredible physiological experience like that made me really have to do the work. So some of that somatic therapies around really sensing different parts in your body and giving it that spaciousness and having that opportunity to actually breathe into it and toggle between the comfortable feelings and the uncomfortable feelings and increase your tolerance to feel your body and feel inside. And something that also helped me was that I think it's called paradoxal intention so when the actual 
trauma sensation start, or the uh, panic sensation comes on. It's like the paradox of, come on, make it really bad. Make me pass out. Let's do it. Because when you want it, it can't make you feel panicky. Just like when you really want to go to sleep, you won't fall asleep. You have to go to sleep. But if you're like, I have to stay up, I have a flight at this time and you're going like really tired. That's what it is with panic attacks as well. I remember doing that. Yeah, bring it on. I'm in a meeting with like 10 other psychiatrists and doctors. And I'm just like, this is a great place for me to pass out. That would be amazing. I'm like, pass out. I could maybe go to the hospital, maybe get a foot rub, have some time off, and then have doing that in my mind rather than, oh, God, no, oh, God, no, oh, God, no, please stop, you know that the pushing yeah. away is always what makes it worse. That's when really interesting. It, yeah, it is. And then the more and more work that I've done, what I really come from now, which is the acceptance and commitment therapy, the ACT, and it's all about yeah. that. It's really about what we resist persists. We're actually making hmm. it worse in our heads when we try to push it away, when we try to rebuke hmm. it, you know, uh-huh. like, ways that we were taught is don't think those things don't think of a pink elephant don't think of a chocolate cake with melty you know obviously (laughs) think of it if you try not to think of it you're gonna it's gonna come even worse and that's pretty much where all the pain comes from in our lives is trying to push away those painful feelings it's actually the fight rather than the actual sensations or feelings it's mm. the struggle with them it's the fear of them it's the i can't do this i can't handle it it's actually increasing your ability your tolerance for it diffusing those sensations and feelings is really what's helped me most in my life so in the ACT model, it's pretty incredible, actually, and it's changed my life a lot. It's really about embracing the thoughts and feelings rather than fighting them or trying to push them away. And it's also with focused on actions around your values. So that's where I've been able to feel the fear and do it anyway, that sort of feeling. Russ Harris is probably one of the biggest names in that. There's a book called The Happiness Trap, and it's a really great, great book, uh, start a book but it has a lot of those feelings and I just realized that's where all my pain came from it was like Mm. trying to drink alcohol I've had problems with drinking before to numb it to stop it I can't handle it I can't feel it but when you actually sit there and you're like oh I can feel it and then you realize that you can actually you don't have to push it away but you can manipulate it's like a thought I think a lot of us have a lot of fear about our children something happening to them obviously every parent does but because so many horrible things happen to us I think we are terrified of that happening for our family so for instance uh we have this beautiful property here and 10 acres. And to me, it's like my paradise and it's like this safe place. And I love it. And last year we got some fill in and we found out days later after we'd been digging in it, it was full of asbestos. So it absolutely shattered me, like to the point of when you tell someone, you tell someone that they're dying of cancer, your whole Mm -hmm. family. Like that's the reaction that I had. I'm like, this is my safe place, but some fucking asshole just decided to dump all this like toxic waste on my land. And now my children have been, you know, digging it into our property. And it just killed me because all my one thing, I'm a shit mom. I'm a horrible person. I'm not safe. The world's unsafe. These are all the things that are automatic programming or thoughts that that just pop. So that was like such a huge experience for me. Years ago, I would have grabbed a bottle of wine, sat in my room, cried for hours, maybe watched Netflix until I passed out, (laughs) trying to took some medication or done something, anything just to shut it off for this horrible shame and guilt and pain but instead with the act model it's all about committing to action you know towards your values also diffusing not to try to shut it off but just by being there with that feeling giving it some space Mm -hmm. accepting it for what it is so at that moment that thing happened and I could have just accept okay this has happened in the end people have had spent 
decades where they've worked with asbestos and nothing's happened. It wasn't anything to do with my fault. How can I be a horrible mom? Just give myself a bit of space in that moment. And, and then I sat down with my son, ended up helping him like finish a really good assignment. He ended up getting an A mm-hmm. for it. So I could use like that action of the most important thing to me is family, love. So everything you're doing, you're not feeling that way, <laughs> but you're just doing it based on your compass, which is like the value system. I actually don't think we can impact our minds or, or our, even our emotions, all those things. They kind of just come and go they're like waves for me with the cbt therapy a lot of people are like change your cognitions (laughs) but when you're actually in trauma mode and stuff you you can't be logical and change your cognition (laughs) it's impossible all you can do is actually act so at that moment if you do something towards your I just showed myself I wasn't a shit horrible mom that's trying to kill my children and putting them in harm (laughs) Because I sat down with him and I did an amazing activity with him and that ended up being a really great experience for both of us and he got an A. And so that's what's helped me get through those these sort of feelings. And, and I still have pangs of a lot of guilt from what Ethan went through my son and, and it happens all the time, like little things pop up. And yeah. like the other day I found out he's not going to drive he's had 200 hours of driving lessons and it might never happen because of the you know the injury that he sustained and that was heartbreaking for me you just you have to sit with that and um yeah I even listened to your podcast and you're like I was finally free when I got my driving license and I remember just like breaking down like no I'll never be free (laughs) (laughs) But obviously he's in a very different position. He's got a lot of love and support with us. But yeah, it's just it's just hard. It's always hard. There's things just pop up all the time. And when I can use some of these strategies that I've learned where I sit with the feeling, I allow it to be there, I give myself a bit of compassion and then yeah, and then you just do something. Just do something based on your value system. Do something that matters to you that makes life meaningful to you and and then you end up having this incredible life unfold sort of because it's all about what way you're acting anyway it's not about what's going on in there and so that's what's helped me get through what so far has been a pretty difficult (laughs) journey yeah seriously wow That's awesome, too. That is like such a good tool to use for anybody, really, that's um, having panic attacks or problems like that. Just lean into it. Let it be. Just be like, bring it on. It's like facing the storm and being like, all right, let's go. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, that's awesome. And then like you were saying, just counteract it with something positive so that you can show your brain, no brain, you're wrong. I'm not a bad mom. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And there's so many fun things you can do. In the ACT model, it's about diffusion. Rather than pushing it out, you're diffusing that physiological, that feeling. For instance, your kid doesn't come home on time. They're dead. They're definitely dead. (laughs) I do that that all the time. It's horrible. And then so you can like, instead of pushing it away, no, I can't think that, ah, you just sing it to happy birthday or you do something silly to diffuse your mind. Or sometimes mm. I even think of myself as Penelope or whatever with big rollers and a big fluffy robe on and <laughs> big bags under my eye, the neurotic me. And I just give myself a little bit of an arm's distance from it rather than always reacting to everything that's happening. So I can actually diffuse. Like I have a client with I've had in the past like um their Tourette syndrome. Instead of trying to stop it, we made a cake with penis colada. So we write make a cake and we write penis colada on it and everyone has a slice. <laughs> and it's just diffusing that sort of anxiety of, of that constant like I can't feel this way. I can't handle this feeling. I can't say these things. I can't think these things. And uh, yeah, the way we were brought up was just so opposite. It was just rebuke it, push it away, devil. There's a war going on inside your head (laughs) instead of just little farts in our brain constantly. It it was just like 
pretty much everything to make someone mentally ill. Like the way we were taught, it was just like the perfect storm of trauma and teaching us all the absolute worst things we could possibly do to be unwell. (laughs) (laughs) So we've had to reparent ourselves and relearn everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Pretty much whatever my first reaction is, I just do the opposite. Because <laughs> I'm like, okay, no, that's what they taught me. So I'm just going to do something else because obviously this is the worst plan. <laughs> For sure. Or if you have it's something that's, if it's a visual, you can manipulate it in your mind. You can visualize it mm-hmm. being like a country and Western. And then you can visualize the cartoon. And, and then mm-hmm. you realize that it's just a thought, it doesn't mean anything. It's just yeah. thoughts that are just bumping around in your head. Pushing it away, you're going to give it more power, but you can just joke around with it a little bit or sing it to a stupid tune or. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, in the end, it's only what you do that matters. Like, it's okay. If you're feeling shit, then go do something nice for a friend or give someone a call. We put too much value on what thoughts we're having. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. I heard this quote today. It was like, your mind is just a dream. It's just a dream because in the night you're sleeping and you're dreaming and in the day you're just dreaming. Like we're daydreaming where everything's coming through the filter. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So can I wanted to ask you um, if you could speak on this. So much of the, like, I guess, tools that we talk about and the things that we've learned, a lot of it has to do with either like us trying to find our own footing or reparenting ourselves, rehealing our trauma and that type of thing. And that can be discouraging and it is very easy to get discouraged and very self-critical and all that. But you have a unique experience from most of us that grew up in the cult and that was that you had a circumstance that that happened to your child that was completely out of your hands what happened to your son is and if you're going to place blame you can lay it at the feet of the cult in my mind it adds a second layer of you're struggling or just living a life where you're dealing with the after effects but how do you let go of some of that like that anger of this shouldn't have happened because it was so much out of your hand. I guess actually you had more than one circumstance where your husband got hit, got in the accident like that. And that was just like completely out of your control. But with your son, there is that entity that you can actually get angry with. So there's this cult that mm-hmm. raises in such a way that forced us to move into the different places that we are put into it. And so here you are with the son. That struggles thing that I'm sure breaks your heart on a daily basis. So how do you face towards that? Because it's not the same as just a random accident or something like that. There's somebody that you can lay lay the blame at, but obviously there's no benefit in doing that. So how do you channel that maybe is good is a good way to ask. Good way well, to I'll firstly it. say the blame has laid from decades squarely on my shoulders. Like I've always been so angry at myself, so shameful, so much guilt. So it's funny that you say that from that perspective. How is someone else's completely fault? You're completely innocent, but I beat myself up for years about it. Honestly, I, I just was yeah. like so angry at myself. Uh, like even when I'd see a baby in the supermarket or something, I'd be like, I wish he was born to that family because that family would have cared for him, not like me. I wouldn't have brought him and put him in in harm's way. And what kind of mother would do that? And uh, it's only taken many years for me to actually go back and think. I was a teenager. <laughs> you know, I was told to go to Africa. I didn't even cross my mind, you know, like all these things could happen. And then even in the home, there was all these experienced mums that should have known and seen the signs of him becoming unwell. Not that I'm blaming other people, but I suppose that was my biggest thing. And it was probably the biggest heartbreak between my husband and I as well. And we had so much shame and guilt, both of us and horrible fights and where we either blame each other or ourselves, depending on how what we were feeling that day. But I think you get your healing from where you get it from. I don't actually believe mm-hmm. in one person or any one thing being the magic potion because it's coming from inside. You're finding the insights 
from within yourself. Or it could be someone with a crystal ball and, and you find an insight from there because it's actually coming from what you're thinking. But I think what helps me the most is looking at such, what a wonderful person he is. And I'm like, if I wish that to not have happened, then I wished him to be a different person. And I don't, I would never wish that he's a different person than what he is because he's such a beautiful, wonderful person. So I think that's what stops me from going into the mires of despair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that um, forgiveness, quote unquote, <laughs> forgiveness mm-hmm. can be such a trigger word actually for a lot of us because for one, it means mm-hmm. a lot of things to a lot of different people. My personal opinion is, is that I think there's mm-hmm. a sort of a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is where someone would think that forgiveness means that I'm saying that it's okay that happened. It's okay. Mm-hmm. that, Or even just like letting it go. Like I'm not even going to think about it anymore, but I, I don't think it's even that. Like for me, like the way that I the way that I interpret forgiveness or the kind of forgiveness that I strive for in my life is where this is no longer going to affect who I am today. It's no longer going to affect the changes that I need to make. It's no longer going to color my view of the world or color my decisions or whatever that is. So what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense with how that sort of like matches up with hmm. Dealing with some of the very traumatic, yeah. <laughs> traumatic things that happened in our lives. For sure. We're talking about that healing journey. I think that's what forgiveness is. When you're to a point of accepting that it happened for whatever reason, this is what you have to work with now. And then it's using that action, like that value-based going towards your goals rather than being caught in that traumatic experience over and over where you're just cycling mm. through that traumatic experience so it's not necessarily like you said they're forgiving yourself or give your scot-free they're scot-free you know no one has consequences. <laughs> they still have to live with the consequences and so do I to live with the consequences mm. of what happened and support him maybe for the rest of my life I don't know for me it's moving out of that trauma cycle because what happens is you actually end up going into the same experiences over and over again when your body is traumatized or something like maybe you've had sexual abuse before and then you've got all this angst around and you haven't processed it and then you end up going into sex work and you end up re-traumatizing yourself over and over again because you're almost trying to find a resolve you're trying to stop that cycle for me that's where that kind of healing comes in that okay that happened there's an acceptance of that fact but I don't want it to happen anymore it doesn't mean not protecting yourself that person has, has hurt me I accept that that has happened I'm not going to let it happen over and over again, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going to understand that they're a dark soul that has done these dark things and they're still in a very low level if they're not in the place that you want them back in your life and that's fine. They're in a very low level of consciousness. They keep hurting people around them and I choose not to have that person in my life, but I can understand where it's come from them and it's not impacting me in my life to the point that I'm having to relive these traumatic experiences, if that makes any sense. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I think you were saying earlier too, once you realize that someone else's actions have absolutely nothing to do with you, that's Mm -hmm. another thing that really helped me personally. Those actions are coming from their trauma, that Mm -hmm. those actions are coming from their anger that they haven't faced. Like what our parents put all of us through, the actions and the choices that they made came from their trauma that they had already had. And once you realize that it wasn't me, (laughs) I'm not the problem, (laughs) then it helps you to realize, oh, okay, that that really had nothing to do with me. That was their mm-hmm. issue. And I just really got sucked into it. And then you start thinking, oh, it's me. I did it. No, I made that person angry. No, you didn't. They were already angry. <laughs> For sure. And to me, uh, we're talking about that healing journey. That's where the healing comes, where you know where your shit ends and their shit begins. And you have to do this in a marriage as well, <laughs> because otherwise you're just always blaming each other and putting it on each other. But you actually realize what's happening right now. It's come from this 
time in their life. Like yeah. I might have said, oh, can you wash the dishes? <laughs> and that becomes this big explosion. Okay, well, he's got trauma around dishes. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask him to do the dishes anymore. It's not because he hates me and doesn't want to do things for me. There's, and when you realize that, then all of a sudden all of that angst and all of that defensiveness and anger fades away. And the work that I do now is I actually work with people that have behavioral concerns. So people with either disabilities or mental health, psychiatric disabilities, and they Mm. usually have behaviors of concern. And what we do and what all the research shows is that there's a function to every behavior. There's a traumatic history. There's a need that's not being met. There's all sorts of the environmental things and triggers. And when you can actually find out what the function is, then you can actually give help that person get their needs met and the behavioral concerns just completely stop. So mm. when anyone's being verbally or physically aggressive or something like that, there's always some need in the back of their mind there's usually a low quality of life there's all these other things that are going on and when you see the world from that perspective and you see it happen day in and day out you help that person get their needs met you can't get defensive you can't get upset when they're yelling or something you just see it as oh that's their history or that's trying to get the need for care or for safety then nothing actually phases you anymore because you see the world from this like maybe it's like a formulation (laughs) and it it can be a really powerful tool to have it's like a peaceful worldview and use positive behavior support if our whole world took that model on there wouldn't be anyone acting out violently or any behavioral concerns or going to jail or recidivision if we increased people's quality of life help them to get their needs met in a way that was productive and safe then you know there wouldn't actually be any of the of all of this suffering and mm-hmm. um, people hurting each other yeah very true even drug addictions come from the same thing of needs that are not being met so you meet them yourself (laughs) you're like fine you didn't do it for me so here goes the needle in my arm no (laughs) but absolutely sure it is and that's that's what you had at the time that's the resources that you had to take care of yourself and to um, survive it makes a lot of sense like you're actually it was the solution wasn't the problem the problem was the trauma right yes exactly exactly that was for me that was every addiction I had was oh this was the solution that's exactly how I went into them originally Mm. and then of course it becomes a whole cycle that you're just trapped in yeah wow you're awesome you are so you're so cool (laughs) you're awesome thank you so much for doing this I'm honestly I'm so grateful and I I have little walks around the lake every afternoon and I listen to your podcast and it's just so heartwarming and incredible and I've got to know you and and so many other amazing people so thank you thank you so much I'm so grateful Yeah. It's it's incredible hearing everyone has such such an amazing story. Like I would have never thought that if I looked at you that all that stuff had happened. People say that to us all the time and you're just like, yeah, it's because I can hold it together pretty good. No. <laughs> good at being a good example. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Amazing. What an interesting life. Yeah. And then you pulled it all together and became a a psychologist. That's just fantastic. So cool. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. That must have been a lot of work. I'm sure it was a lot of work. And it is still on a daily basis. It's not like (laughs) you ever get to a point where you're like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Another part of that act thing that I say is like whenever something comes my way, like a problem, I always say that's a good problem to have because in the end we all have problems, whether (laughs) it's putting food on the table or paying 12 practitioners or running a giant business with hundreds of people. Everyone's got problems. It doesn't get any easier. The stakes actually get higher and it's gets more anxiety provoking and <laughs> there's more responsibility. So starting with that, okay, death and taxes, that's all we can actually <laughs> know. We're allowed yeah, yeah. to know that's actually going to happen. The rest is just <laughs> And then when you can 
think start with that. Okay, that's a good problem. All right, we've got a good problem. We've got a giant tax bill. <laughs> then you can come from that perspective. But if you want a, a chilled life or an easy life, then honestly, it's impossible. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's nowhere that you're going to have, like maybe living on an island on your by yourself or something, I'm not sure, but then you get lonely and then that's worse than everything else. People say, you made it or are you this? And it's, then the problems get different. Then they're still mm-hmm. there. Though. So you still have to come from that perspective of things are going to come your way. And, and if you're always trying to have an easy life, that's where the actual suffering comes from, <laughs> is trying yeah. to push away the negative feelings or the scary things or the people that are coming after you like you've got no control over anyone else and anything else and you don't even have control over your own mind honestly your mind is just blah 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 blah. (laughs) the only thing we can control is what we actually do our actions and I tell people this all the time no one went to jail for being angry or having a bad thought they went to jail for killing someone or stabbing them. So it's only your actions that you can ever do something about. And when you realize the person that's doing the actions is like the observing person and, mm-hmm. and you realize that you don't necessarily have to react to every single thought that pops into your head and you have so much power in your life. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. Between action and reaction lies choice. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. Great quote. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining us. You're a brave warrior. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending your time with us and for sharing some of the things <laughs> that you've learned. It's, it's been an amazing experience for me. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah, thank well. you so much. Yeah, well. so, thank you. And we'll just end it like we always do. Stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar.